Those of you who are fortunate enough to have attended the Wilkinson Lecture in October of 2000 know you're in for a treat. On that occasion, Scott Berg gave an absolutely spellbinding talk on Charles Lindbergh. Now, it's a good thing for us that Mr. Berg did his undergraduate work at Princeton. Although he lives in Los Angeles, he's been a faithful alumnus of Princeton, including service uh, for a term on the university's board of trustees. And now, happily for us, he's writing a biography of Woodrow Wilson, who, as you all know, was president of Princeton before he was president of the country. So Scott was a natural to ask to speak at this symposium. Although he's still in the middle of researching and writing, we prevailed upon him to come and give us some insight into his recreation of the character and personality of the last Virginia president, the last to date, that is. <laughs> We're therefore privileged to be the first to hear him talk about his next book. And although it hasn't been written yet, I know it's going to be as acclaimed and well-received as his previous efforts. Think about it. How many audience get a, audiences get a sneak preview of a bestseller by a Pulitzer Prize-winning author? <laughs> Please welcome Scott Berg back to the VHS. To Well, thank you. Thank you very much. And it is genuinely very nice to be back here. I had such happy memories. It is why I came back. Uh, but that was a terrible introduction. Um, <laughs> because, the, I mean, the first thing you should do is lower the expectations. Um, you say every now and then he has a, an original thought and he stammers the odd word out. And now... Uh, <sighs> okay. Um, we're going to plow on. Um, fortunately, uh, I, I presume most of you, if not all of you, were here last night, and you uh, got to be inspired and fired up as, as I was. Um, I think we all realized last night the importance of reading history, and in some of our cases, it made me re reminded me of the importance of writing history as well. Um, Blanton Scholars, where are you all? You all are the Blanton Scholars in the room? Or, no? Gosh, oh, okay. I hope, I hope they get here because these are the ones Woodrow Wilson would have wanted to speak to. The students, he would want to mold those young minds. Uh, so uh, I, I also wanted to uh, lay out for them, but I will tell you uh, how I got started in the first place, um, a, a little like David McCullough's uh, chance encounter with Harry Truman. Um, but when, when I was 15 years old, I dare say I was the only 10th grader at Palisades High School in Pacific Palisades, California, with Woodrow Wilson's poster on his wall. <laughs> uh, and, you know, it was because of a book. I mean, it just took a book. And it was a book that was published in 1965 called When the Cheering Stopped. Lively, wonderful book. Uh, that was really the first book to talk about uh, Mrs. Wilson and her role uh, after President Wilson had suffered his, his stroke. In any case, I got so fired up by that. Um, and, I, you know, I was 15. I think I fell in love with tragic idealists or something. Uh, and I'm happy to say I'm still in love with tragic idealists. Uh, and and I, I was so so pleased to hear about Adams carrying his Cervantes around, you know, because, uh, boy, that's it for me, too. Um, 
I carry Cervantes, and I, and, I, and I carry the U.S. Constitution, which is really good reading, I might add. You know, I had, I had dinner once right, right next to Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and she, every now and then she'd she keep pulling out. I said, what is that? She said, that's the rule book. You know, and she, and anyway, <laughs> right she is. So I digress. Um, you've, you, the situation has been explained to you. There are certain rules I have now about Woodrow Wilson that I will just get out of the way here. Um, I really didn't want to be here uh, because my book is four or five years from completion, I think. I'm thrilled to be, but really, I, I'm here because I didn't want anyone else to come talk to you about Woodrow Wilson, frankly. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's really it. <laughs> I'll, be, I'll be really honest. That being said, I reserve the right not to answer any question you may ask, furthermore, to change my mind when you read my book. I mean, if I do say something, because I am, like my book, a work in progress. And things change. And I may see a letter or a something, a Rosetta Stone in three years, that changes what I thought from five years ago. Uh, Writing biography to me is a little like the photographer in the darkroom. And you put the film in the tank, and the picture gets more and more real, more clear, more vivid. And I'm far from having a complete picture right now, but I can already see certain shapes and shadows and certain things projecting. And I thought I might touch on a few of those. And this is actually the other For me, interesting reason, I really wanted to come to Richmond to talk about Wilson. And it was was the topic of this whole symposium. Because time and again, so fascinating. The one thing Wilson keeps going back to is Virginia. And he keeps talking about Virginia and his Virginia-ness. It is interesting to me that of the 40-odd men, and some very odd men, um, who, who, have, um, who have reached the White House, each of them has traveled a unique path. There's no question of that. But I don't know anybody else's that has really even approached, doesn't even resemble what Woodrow Wilson's path to the White House looked like. Here was a man who became president of the United States without being a national hero, who had really no political experience per se, although, as he used to say, politics, try running a college, um, and, and, uh, and being a minister's son, for that matter, too. Uh, but he really had very little governmental experience before he became president of the United States. And above all, he was a man who came from academia, if you can imagine, This was a man who really got elected president of the United States because the sharpest tool he had was his brain. It was really because of his intellect that Woodrow Wilson overcame everything and became president. And last night we heard a bit about Harry Truman being the least formally educated president of the century. Woodrow Wilson was easily the most educated president we have had in our history. Uh, So, to tell you a little about Woodrow Wilson, the only place in the country, he said, the only place in the world where nothing has to be explained to me is the South. And when he thought of the South, he was thinking mostly 
of Virginia, even though he spent very little time there. Thomas Woodrow Wilson, named for an uncle and his grandfather, was born December 28, 1856, in Stanton, Virginia. His father, Joseph R. Wilson, was a very prominent Presbyterian minister. His mother, Janet Woodrow Wilson, was the daughter of a Presbyterian minister. And if you go to Stanton, and I hope you will, uh, especially because they're building a presidential library there, uh, I think you will see the flock in Stanton took pretty nice care of their, um, of their shepherd. Uh, it was pretty good digs, I thought, for 1856. Um, a year later, the Wilson family uh, moved to Augusta, Georgia, and it was there that Wilson had his, the first experience in his life that he remembered for the rest of his life. And it was upon the election of Lincoln, and young four-and-a-half-year-old Tommy Wilson was standing at the front gate in front of the Mance house uh, in Augusta. And, and there he overheard some people right on the corner saying that Lincoln had just been elected president and a war was coming. Knew it. And he carried that with him for the rest of his life. As it happened, Augusta was a relatively quiet city in which to grow up, relatively, uh, during the war and the Reconstruction. I would say the psychological price uh, was a lot higher than the physical price that the town or its citizens paid. Wilson did not go to school until he was 10 years old. He really could not read until he was 11. Uh, I believe there was some dyslexia as part of that formula. I still want to check that out. Uh, there was no real public e education, per se. He did have the good fortune of having a <coughs> widely read father who read a lot to the family. And Joseph R. Wilson shared with young Tommy the good books from Shakespeare to Dickens. He also shared the good book a lot, a lot. And the first time Wilson could recall reading an entire book was actually Parson Weems's George Washington. Uh, he had a fairly normal childhood, other than the fact that he didn't go to school, although uh, that was fairly normal in the 1850s, 60s, 70s, in the South especially. He had clubs. He played baseball. The one unusual thing is he was always writing constitutions. <laughs> uh, a little odd. Uh, but, you know, his father really stressed the importance of the great documents of this country, among other things and among other virtues and values. And at a very early age, Woodrow Wilson saw the importance of, and the beauty of even, the law and constitutions, order, making everything fit and work because it has been written. The family uh, moved on to Columbia, South Carolina, and uh, when he was 16 years old, Tommy Wilson went to Davidson College, which was a real haven um, for Presbyterians from North Carolina, most especially. Uh, because of ill health, he dropped out after his first year. I was just in Davidson earlier this week, and so fascinating to go through some of his papers down there, to see one of the debating societies down there and to see in Wilson's own hand the Constitution he wrote for the club. Did I, did I mention this guy liked constitutions? 
he was just crazy about these documents. Uh, when he dropped out, he went to Wilmington, North Carolina, where the family had moved. And, uh, and uh, when he was well enough, uh, he decided to restart college, which he did, this time going farther north, this time going to Princeton, New Jersey, another great Presbyterian institution at the time, uh, then being run by President James McCosh, um, a great leader in education and religion. Uh, he was a, just a formidable figure uh, in, in uh, higher education at that point. The other important thing, I think, uh, for Wilson uh, about Princeton was that its most famous alumnus to date had been James Madison, uh, who also had, shall we say, an affinity for constitutions. <laughs> <laughs> and there were lots of things about Madison that, that really... I was going to say intrigued, but they rather thrilled young Tommy Wilson as he still was in college. And I would say they were, in addition to this uh, penchant for constitutions, uh, just the intellectualism of, of this young man. And I think in Wilson's mind, this was a peculiarly Virginia legacy, this thing about constitutions, about debate, about the oratory that goes into codifying life. There was the great impact to be felt a century after, well, at that point, 60 years after, uh, no, it was about a century after uh, uh, Madison had been there, of uh, another fellow. And, boy, I wish there were a Blanton scholar here because I have a great idea for a book or a thesis or somebody. And, and that is, or, hey, you can all run with it if you like, but that is an early president of Princeton who is John Witherspoon, one of the signers of the Constitution, um, one of the presidents of Princeton University, and really the mentor to Madison and three uh, signers of the Declaration of Independence, uh, really a great figure whose influence is still felt in some ways at Princeton today because it was Witherspoon, as much as anybody, uh, who had this notion that that higher education should not be about the ivory tower, that it should really be about putting informed young men, as it was in the 18th and 19th century, out into the world, but really in the world. They should be part of the intercourse of what was going on socially and politically. Interesting that young Tommy Wilson, between classes in his notebooks, he was obsessed with his own handwriting, I should tell you. And he, I mean, he had the most magnificent handwriting. It looks as though he wrote the great documents. And he, I mean, they were beautiful, everything he wrote. But as doodles, he used to do the equivalent of business cards, which he would write out, which would be uh, Thomas Woodrow Wilson, a senator from Virginia. Uh, so, after Princeton University, uh, he thought Virginia was the place to go back to. Uh, he was indeed a dynamo at Princeton, I should tell you. Uh, he was highly engaged in his studies, in extracurricular activities. He was extremely popular on campus. He joined clubs, he sang, he managed teams, he debated, he worked on more constitutions. Um, so it was indeed natural, but in some ways wrong-headed, for him to go to law school, as he did. As he later said, the profession I chose was politics. The profession I entered was the law. I entered the one because I thought it would lead to the other. And so he did come down to Charlottesville. There, of course, 
he found what anybody who gets within 100 miles of Charlottesville finds, Thomas Jefferson everywhere. <laughs> That's a good thing. That's a good thing. I followed Jefferson because of his principles, Wilson later said. It is indeed his spirit that rules us from the urn. His principles were the right of the individual to opportunity and the right of the people to a development not monopolized by the few. And this was, you see, Tommy Wilson was not a poor boy, but he was a minister's son. He had to be very careful. Uh, but what he saw was the class structure that had really taken over this country, especially by the end of the 19th century. Uh, he really saw a great division of haves and have-nots. He saw a few millionaires who literally had more money than the United States Treasury, bailing out the country when in need. Uh, he saw unusual power invested in a few people. He thought this was the antithesis of everything Jefferson dreamed of, thought of, spoke of, wrote of. At this time, Wilson himself begins to assert his own individuality. And he did it in a really crucial and small way, but it was a, it was a big rebellion for him, actually. He dropped his first name. He was no longer going to be named after anyone. He was going to make a name for himself. And so Tommy, Thomas Woodrow Wilson, became then officially Woodrow Wilson as he signed every document thereafter. Uh, illness, again, uh, reared its head in Wilson's life, as it does for the rest of his life. And the more I get into researching the life of Wilson, the more I'm realizing the great impact his ill health had, not just on him personally, but indeed on the country and on the world. But he went home to Wilmington after his uh, first year at Virginia Law School, and there he read the law on his own. Uh, he read a lot of literature along the way. He read a lot of the great parliamentarians. He read Gladstone. He read John Bright. He read the American equivalents, too. He read the great orators. He read Jefferson. He read Patrick Henry and Madison and George Mason. And after he felt uh, equipped to practice the law, he moved down to Atlanta, which he thought was an up-and-coming city at that point. He hung a shingle out with a friend from Virginia named Edward Rennick, and there he passed the bar and said, hung up his shingle and became an attorney at law. Not a very successful one, I might add, uh, and one that he really didn't have his heart in, in any of it. And so after really a very short time of really just picking up a little business mostly thrown to him from his family, as if to replenish his mind, if not his soul, Wilson decided to go back to school. He loved scholarship. He loved college campuses. And he went to Johns Hopkins University, where he studied history and government. And he got his PhD writing his dissertation on congressional government. He then began to live the life of a young scholar, as one would today. He uh, looked for work as a college professor, which he found at a new women's college called Bryn Mawr, just outside of Philadelphia. He taught there a couple of years, then moved on to Wesleyan in Connecticut. And he was writing books along the way on the history of statecraft, the history of the United States. He wrote essays on, on literature, on ethics. He even wrote a biography. He wrote a biography of George Washington. And 
And if you read this biography, so much of it is, is about Virginia. It's just steeped in Virginia, Virginiana. Yeah, you know what I mean. His portrait of Washington, it's not Parson Weems, but it's not a lot better. Um, but what he, what he does capture of, of Washington, and he so clearly adored Washington, was this great sense of duty that Washington had, and clearly, as we heard a lot last night, this great leadership that he had, just this natural leadership. And all of this, you see, was filtering in through around Woodrow Wilson. Now, along the way, he also had a personal life. And he married a woman named Ellen Axon, who was from Rome, Georgia. I probably don't have to tell you, she was the daughter of a Presbyterian minister. (laughs) I mean, these guys, I mean, wonderful, but not a lot of imagination, you know? (laughs) I mean, Presbyterian, fine, but they all have to be children of ministers, my God. In any case, you know, Ellen Wilson is often painted as a kind of simple partner. The more I get into the life and the letters of Ellen Wilson, the more fascinating she becomes to me. She was an extremely cultured and cultivated young woman, rather attractive. Uh, She wrote wonderful letters, extremely well read. Uh, Young Woodrow, uh, writing his books, bounced everything off of Ellen. Uh, She was also an extremely good painter. And I think had she pursued her painting on a more full-time basis than she did, uh, she probably could have been one of America's important Impressionist painters. And the young professor and his wife uh, finally got the gig he was really hoping for, dreaming of, um, as he now realized there might be a lovely life to live as a college professor and a writer of books. And the job he got was teaching history and jurisprudence at his alma mater at, uh, at Princeton, then called the College of New Jersey. Just as he had been a most zealous undergraduate, uh, Wilson was uh, the same in the classroom and on the campus. He became the most famous man in Princeton. He became the big man on campus. He was the most popular professor by far on the Princeton campus. He managed uh, teams. Uh, He was uh, the overseer of the debate society. He rewrote constitutions uh, for so many of the clubs at Princeton, uh, the the, um, uh, extracurricular clubs. Uh, He gave all sorts of extracurricular lectures, both on campus and on other campuses. He would periodically be asked to give sermons, which he did. In 1896, he gave an extremely important speech for the sesquicentennial, fancy word for 150th of the College of New Jersey. And in that speech, he really went back in so many ways to the thinking, I think, of John Witherspoon. And the the core of this speech was a call to arms, in essence, in which he talked about Princeton in the nation's service. And it is, to this day, still the motto of that university. And to this day, the hope is, anyway, that, that Princetonians have been infused with that notion, that it is not enough just to walk away with what knowledge has been put in, but you've got to put something else back out there into the world. 
over the next few years as his fame spread beyond the Princeton campus, Woodrow Wilson was offered the presidency of a half dozen colleges around the country. The University of Virginia knocked on his door three times asking him to be the president in Charlottesville. He turned them all down. He was very happy where he was. And indeed, the one thing he wasn't happy with, the then existing president, the serving president of Princeton, one Francis Landy Patton, uh, stepped down or was kicked down. And the uh, trustees of Princeton University went looking for a new president, and they did not look far, and they did not look for a long time. In fact, on the first ballot, Woodrow Wilson was unanimously elected president of, of Princeton University, as it was then called since the sesquicentennial. And here, Wilson becomes, as was his nature, um, a great leader, not just on Princeton's campus, but in the world of higher education. Uh, in the end, he really left a legacy that was a new pedagogical model, if you will, for higher education as we know it today. Other schools had honor codes, but he really enforced it and saw that it became part of the foundation of Princeton University. He drafted several dozen young academicians to become preceptors, and these were young men who ran preceptorials, small classes, six or seven students at a time, sitting with a young professor, discussing the material they had lectured to them earlier in the week, or reading they had read. It was obviously a variation on the Don system. There were various um, examples of this starting to sprout, but it was, again, really Wilson who put this together, this idea, perhaps, that education might be two lectures a week and a preceptorial. Uh, while other colleges were working out electives and so forth, it was, again, Wilson who really solidified this notion of having a major and perhaps a minor, but having elective courses so that young men, alas, still at Princeton, uh, young men could be well-rounded human beings as they went out into the nation's service in one form or another. And everywhere he turned, he saw that same old status social structure that he had resented when he was an undergraduate. And he saw this embodied in the eating clubs at Princeton, which he thought were terribly undemocratic, terribly un-Jeffersonian. And he did everything he could to break them up, finding great resistance from the trustees, although getting a lot of notoriety. I mean, believe it or not, the New York Times and other papers around the country were picking up these stories and starting to write about how how President Wilson at this small men's college in New Jersey, and, and by that I mean it was a small men's college. It wasn't small men's, it was, uh, although, <laughs> although I, am, I am reminded of James Madison here. Um, not that there's anything wrong with that. But, but there were two great fights he, he had on the Princeton campus, both of which were really not just about strengthening the academics at Princeton, but they were really about trying to fight 
this class structure on the campus, and they had to do with the location of where a graduate school was going to be put, and it had to do with the building of quadrangles, where students of all years and graduate students even might all live together and work together. Wilson lost both of these rather bloody battles. Uh, A lot of people referred to them as the second battles of Princeton. Um, and he did lose them, make, make no mistake about it. Uh, there was great protest from, from the alumni and a lot of the students who rather resented the fact that Wilson was trying to turn what many believed was just a country club into a formidable university. I should add that there are a lot of Princetonians today who are still angry <laughs> at uh, Woodrow Wilson for turning their country club, well... In any case, Woodrow Wilson said this, the purpose of a college education, and again, remember this is 19th century, early 20th century, so put this in context. The purpose of a college education is to teach young men, let's add women now, to think as differently from their fathers as possible. (laughs) And it's kind of witty and epigrammatic, but it's really kind of wise and wonderful at the same time, isn't it? He had this notion that if you went off to school and you ended up thinking as your father did, your father, who is already along a path, is somewhere in a career whose, whose own thinking has begun to ossify, if, <laughs> if that's who you are at 17, 18, 19, are you ever going to think any differently? And this was a great concern for Woodrow Wilson. And it's when you start to think about it, a rather radical notion. And I think in his genteel, often quiet way, there was something deeply radical about Woodrow Wilson. Now, with his growing reputation as a scholar, as a thinker, as an orator, because he's out lecturing to alumni clubs all over the country, to local civic groups all over the country, Uh, He's writing a lot of articles. He's become a sage. He writes about ethics. He writes a little about politics. And without coming out and being overtly political, he is raging against a lot of what was happening in the late 19th century, the early 20th century. He was raging against these financial titans and the monopolies controlling the country, against who were, for the most part, uh, fat cat Republicans. He was, without quite using the phraseology or without using the term, he was becoming, in his own way, a progressive. And it was not strange then that in 1910, when he has just lost these big battles of Princeton, that the Democratic political machine in the state of New Jersey approached President Wilson of Princeton. Now... New Jersey, if you can believe it, then was corrupt. Uh, (laughs) I love New Jersey. I love New Jersey. I love it because of its corruption, not not just... but, But this was really... This was a state really run by bosses. And the Democratic Party in New Jersey, they knew they were in a bit of trouble. They knew they needed a face man. They needed somebody out front. So they said to themselves, okay, who is the squeakiest, cleanest guy in all of New Jersey? 
let's get that wiry little professor, that president of Princeton, you know, with his pants nay, and, you know, and let's make him our guy. And so they asked him if he would, well, they didn't use the word puppet, but, <laughs> but basically they said, uh, President Wilson, couldn't we get behind you and run you for governor? And Wilson said, yes, he would be willing, so long as they understood that they would have no control over him. Oh, sure. <laughs> you got it, professor. Uh, whatever you say, professor. Well, indeed, he ran. Uh, and during the campaign, he really answered to nobody. He began to give speeches on his own. And they were quite wonderful uh, for all sorts of reasons, two in particular. One, uh, and you can get this online, actually, but one can hear Woodrow Wilson's voice. And I tell you, I think he is the most wonderful, magnificent orator I have ever heard. He had this lovely lyric baritone, perfect enunciation, a drop, I mean just a drop of honey from the South, just a drop <laughs> that, that would get there. You know, I mean, a lot of you slather it on, you know. But he, he sometimes I just can't understand <laughs> he had just, you know, and the second thing, the high thoughts he had, he was wildly articulate, but what he never did was lower or cheapen the level of the debate or the arguments. He always raised the audience, and there was something so wonderfully uplifting about this college professor going out there who everyone said, oh, he's not a politician, he doesn't know what he's doing. But the fact of the matter is, when people heard Woodrow Wilson, they felt better about themselves. They truly felt elevated for his having spoken to them. It was a wonderful thing. It was, it was really oratory as, as an art and as a gift. And I should also tell you, he was so gifted a speaker he seldom wrote out a speech. The very important speeches, the historical ones, he obviously wrote out. But when he was campaigning, sometimes giving five speeches a day, and um, all different, he would go out there with nothing more than a small note card with four or five bullet points. And I tell you, because he would then, there would be somebody taking it down in shorthand as he spoke, you would go through some of these 90-minute speeches there is not a flaw in grammar, in syntax, in the paragraphing. It is sheer magnificence what this man had. Total, total gift. President Alderman of University of Virginia said after the campaign, you have set a standard of campaigning that has acted like a tonic upon the dull minds of many of our political leaders. <laughs> the keen analysis, the good humor, the self-respect, the frankness, the dignity, the abstinence from personalities and the plain practical common sense of your appeals have lifted you, more, uh, lifted you more than mere success at the polls to a place among the small but inspiring list of national leaders of our reorganized party of opposition. Now imagine this. Here's a man who is still a professor and a president of a small college in New Jersey, and he is already being talked about as a candidate for president of the United States. It's quite extraordinary. A man who had never held public office. A man who, 
became governor of New Jersey. He won. It was a very resounding victory in 1910. He comes in, becomes governor. The first thing he does is crush the machine, dismantles it. There were two or three big incidents right away in which the the bosses were applying their pressure to get him to knuckle under, and he spoke out against them publicly. He took it to the people, and he said, we've got to get rid of these bosses. And act by act, that's just what he did until he neutralized them of what little power they had. By the time he left office in two or two years, they, they had almost none of it left. He replaced party caucuses with open primaries. He introduced workmen's compensation laws, creation of public utilities commission. He became progressively and quickly a progressive. He really adopted, cobbled together a lot of the progressive agenda, and he introduced a lot of thoughts of his own. But within a year and a half, he was indeed not just a possible contender for the 1912 nomination for president from the Democratic Party, but he was one of the three front runners. And indeed, on the 46th ballot in the summer of 1912, the Democrats did make a bit of a compromise, but they went with the governor of New Jersey. A year and a half he'd been in office. It's just unbelievable to me. Over the course of this campaign, he got to spread his oratory all around the country. And people began to hear words such as they had never heard before and delivered in a way they had never heard anyone quite deliver it. You, know, you, can, you can see there are obviously silent films of, of his contenders in this election. Uh, we had the rather elephantine William Howard Taft, um, who was president of the United States, sitting president of the United States, almost always sitting, I think, because <laughs> let's be fair, um, And then we had bolting from the party, the bull moose, we had Teddy Roosevelt. And indeed, you have only to see the silent films of Teddy Roosevelt campaigning. (laughs) You didn't get that from Woodrow Wilson. It's all lower key. And it's as though they wanted something different. You know, we wouldn't mind having a schoolmaster right now. We wouldn't mind having a minister's son there who can give the occasional sermon. I think it really bespeaks the times, as any election does, of course. But over the course of his campaign, he kept talking about a new freedom. And this became, of course, the moniker that we attached to the Wilson years, the new freedom. And what he meant was, and it was a message for everybody, an economic emancipation in this country. He was, again, speaking out against the monopolies and the immoral millionaires. And again, he repeatedly, as I, you know, it doesn't take a wild leap, conjured up Thomas Jefferson. And the way we heard about other leaders in the past, uh, last night, going to Cervantes uh, and uh, Shakespeare for inspiration, Wilson did that. But indeed, he kept going back to the founding fathers for inspiration. He was one of those men who read these speeches, who so believed in them, he literally could be brought to tears reading the speeches, reading the constitutions of of our forefathers. He could look at the American flag, and not in a false sentimental way, but in a truly, deeply emotional way, 
work himself into a state. I mean, there, there's a flag day speech he gives looking at the red blood of the American soldiers who died in the revolution and the white parchment on which our constitution is written and the, and the blue field of stars shining down on this country. Well, this stuff was great. But it was so great because he believed it. He truly, truly did. I remember how when I was a boy, he said in one of his speeches, I used to be thrilled by reading the mere sentences of Thomas Jefferson. I did not know distinctly what they meant, but somehow they quickened my blood. Somehow they stirred everything that was within me. Somehow they made me feel freer as I read. And there began to dawn upon me the vision of America, the nation that had eschewed private power, that had turned its back upon the control by individuals of the fortunes of great masses of men that had begun to believe in the immortality and in the immortal freedom of the human soul. Wow. I mean, in other hands or from other mouths, I'm not sure I'd buy it. But there was something so genuine there. And it worked. And Woodrow Wilson won the election of 1912, which was truly one of the most fascinating horse races ever run in this country. He, uh, he beat Teddy Roosevelt by some 2 million votes, William Howard Taft, the sitting president, by some 3 million. Uh, he himself got 6.2 million votes in the election. So, and it was a, a, an electoral college sweep. Obviously, there was a third party running. People have argued and debated, you know, what would have happened if Teddy Roosevelt hadn't run? What if Taft hadn't run? What if it had been Wilson and T.R.? Well, basically, I don't do futures. I do pasts. Um, but um, I will consult with Madam Olga before I um, publish my book, and I'll let you know what she's got to say. But in any case, the important thing is that Wilson, though a minority president, that is, he had about 43% of the vote, did win the election of 1912. And this was one of those moments, you know, we say every election, oh, this is the most important election in 100 years. Well, 1912 was a moment when there was a shift in the axis of the earth uh, for reasons I'll tell you in a minute, as you know, that are about to happen. And Taft said something quite interesting when he left the White House. He noted that, he, he said, Wilson would give the South, the South, a greater feeling of participation in the government than there had been during the Republican regime. And that would do much toward eliminating sectional feeling. An interesting comment about a man, Wilson, who had just spent the last 30 years living in the North. And yet there was something just innately Virginian, Southern about this man. Once in office, of course, he kept recalling Thomas Jefferson. Largely Jefferson because he was understanding the radical nature of Jefferson, how laws must constantly be reinterpreted so that they can be applied to their day. Uh, as a political scientist, uh, Wilson often commented on his new role, that is, the presidency, and how undefined it is in the rule book, in the Constitution there. It says very little about what the president is supposed to do. He is the commander-in-chief. He shall from time to time give to the Congress information of the State of the Union. He's got something to say about treaties and appointments, all with the advice and consent of Congress. But other than that, it's pretty ill-defined. And in that lack of definition, that was where Wilson thought 
a president, a strong president such as Teddy Roosevelt not long before him, could really move in. I don't think there has ever been, before or since Wilson, another president in the White House who so looked for and listened to the ghosts that haunt that house. Again, this was a man who had studied all the history, who had read all the documents, who could well up at the flag. He knew the price that it cost to put a red stripe in that flag, you see. And so he was constantly listening for and looking to those prior presidents for guidance. The one he turned to most, I think, while he was in the White House, most logically, was George Washington. And a lot of that, I think, had to do with one other factor that he came to appreciate about Washington. And it was this. I found this quote about a year ago. He said, I find that some people think that America was settled at the time the Puritans came over. But it was settled several years before that in a colony known as Virginia. And when the American Revolution came on, Virginia showed this singular characteristic. She was willing to fight for something that had nothing to do with her own material interests. He talked about the navigation laws, you see, which really restricted life and trade, mostly in Boston. And he was thrilled by the fact that even though it didn't much interfere with the material prosperity of Virginia, that became one of the great causes for Virginians in the Revolution, especially, uh, uh, he thought, Washington. And that was part of his greatness, that, that Washington could see that in order to make this country happen, one had to look beyond his own personal needs, look beyond his own colony or state, really had to look at the nation at large. And so Washington really did become his lodestar through certainly the first term of office. And what a remarkable first term Woodrow Wilson had within a year we suddenly had the Underwood, Underwood Simmons Tariff Act, which lowered the tariffs for the first time uh, in 75 years, which totally altered the economic structure of this country. The Federal Reserve Act, the Clayton Antitrust Act, the creation of the Federal Trade Commission, the repeal of Panama Canal tolls exemptions that uh, basically Teddy Roosevelt had helped engineer. These things were all, again, Wilson's idea of leveling the playing field for the average American. He seemed unstoppable. He had this incredible progressive agenda that he was pushing. And I think only two things stopped him, dead in his tracks. One, one was his beloved wife, and boy, you should see the love letters between him and his wife, even when he went off on a week's tour just to give lectures. Romantic passionate, eloquent, deep, moving, sad, funny, wonderful letters. And they are barely in the White House, and Wilson's beloved wife, Ellen, quite suddenly dies. And here is the President of the United States, absolutely bereft, can barely get out of bed in the morning, and is literally talking about giving up his office. He just cannot go on. The second thing that was occurring was, in that very moment, I mean literally within weeks of Ellen Wilson's death, 
the first guns began to boom over in Europe in 1914, and it was the beginning of the Great War, what we call World War I. And so here is this man, totally despondent, as the world is going completely to hell. And it was ultimately that, and I think probably a little of the Washingtonian spirit that got him out of bed. I think it was this call to arms of duty. And what he did, as well as he could, was try to keep advancing some of his domestic agenda, which included you know, the eight-hour day and child labor laws and workman's compensation. But now he really had to pay almost full attention to foreign policy. As there were incidents breaking out in our own backyard with Mexico, sinking of ships by the Germans, uh, Lusitania in 1915, American lives being lost as the Germans are starting to wage submarine warfare. For several years, Wilson did the best he could preaching neutrality uh, in thought as well as in body. Uh, he kept us out of, out of the war as long as he could. And indeed, that became his call to arms in 1916, that he did keep us out of war. And the 1916 election became one of the great squeakers again in American political history. And indeed, on election night, running against Charles Evans Hughes, a man who had stepped off the Supreme Court so he could run as the Republican nominee for President of the United States, on that night, Woodrow Wilson went to bed being told he had lost the election. And early the next morning, they began to get word from the West Coast. Crazy Californians. Uh, yet again. Uh, but they said, uh, Mr. President, actually things seem to be uh, turning the other way. And within a day or two, uh, it turned out to be the case. And by a few thousand votes, California went for Woodrow Wilson. And he became the first... Democratic president, the first sitting Democrat, to be given by the voters a second consecutive term in about 100 years. Not since Andrew Jackson had that been the case. And there he was, now having to take on the world. George Washington's words constantly echoed in his ears. But he began to think more and more about this, fighting for neutrality. And he said, I do not believe that when Washington warned us against entangling alliances, he meant for one moment that we should not join with the other civilized nations of the world if a method could be found to diminish war and encourage peace. And indeed, after years, months, days of deliberation and resistance, Woodrow Wilson assembled his cabinet and they all unanimously said, we had to get into this war. This after three ships had been downed in a row by the Germans and, again, dozens, scores of American lives with them. He called Congress into special session, and he, and on April 2nd uh, of uh, 1917, famously exhorted, uh, perhaps the line he is most famous for, actually, that the world must be made safe for democracy. And he weighed every one of those words. And I should add that Woodrow Wilson, I believe, was the last, and we'll have to ask Michael Beschloss about this, I believe was the last president who wrote, created, 
every word he uttered. He did not have speechwriters doing this. When Woodrow Wilson wanted to give a big speech, when he wanted to give a State of the Union address, and he was the first since Adams to deliver the State of the Union address. He believed it was very important that the Congress see the president, that the public see the president and the Congress together, that there is some cooperation. But when he delivered that, indeed, America went to war. And here, for good or for ill, and this will be something I will, of course, weigh, uh, begins at least much of the next century's foreign policy. And it comes from another Virginian in so many ways, because I think the figure who looms over Wilson's second term more than anyone else, even though Wilson never really talked much about himself, was James Monroe. And he talked a lot about that doctrine of his. Uh, the doctrine which was expressed in his uh, seventh address to Congress in 1823, which stated in essence that we would watch over our neighbors in this hemisphere to see that Europeans' intent on colonializing stayed out of our backyards, and in return we would stay out of theirs. But what Wilson pointed out is this isn't part of international law. Um, this isn't part of some constitution. But what the Monroe Doctrine was about was the honor of the United States in respect of these long-cherished, and I'm quoting here, and long-admired promises that really existed because of her own moral and physical force, and those much must be exercised. Wilson proved to be an extremely effective commander in the chief, rallying the troops. The Selective Service Act came into being. Billions of dollars in bonds were raised. Two million American soldiers were sent overseas. He did this because he realized the most important thing in the world at this point was peace, and the price to pay to sit at the peace conference was to go to war. Only one thing got him through this, I think. And uh, I will just take a moment here to talk about The title of this symposium is Washington to Wilson, but I would be remiss if I didn't change the title to Washington to the Wilsons. I'll just say a note about this. In 1915, the bereft widower, Woodrow Wilson, met a rather intriguing, rather attractive young widow named Edith Bowling Galt, who was perhaps the most Virginian person who has ever resided in the White House. Um, I say this because she claims her descendants went back to Pocahontas. (laughs) So there. (laughs) Top that one. She was born in Wytheville in 1872. She was the seventh child of a circuit court judge. She was educated quite briefly in the Powell School for Girls here in Richmond. She moved to Washington, D.C. to live with her sister, and there she met Norman Galt, who sold jewelry and silverware. She married him in 1896. He was somewhat older than she. She was 24. But 12 years into their marriage, he died. She relied on the kindness of friends, and through several friends, she met the President of the United States in March of 1915. They courted quite privately during the spring. They got secretly engaged that summer, and they got married at the end of the fall. 
They honeymooned in Hot Springs, Virginia. She accompanied him to Paris. She was there as the peace was being dictated. It was an imperfect peace, to be sure. We could spend a whole weekend uh, debating, as many do, uh, what went on in Versailles. But throughout what was guiding Wilson was, he believed in a peace without victory. He believed in not punishing the losers. He believed in something he put in a formal constitution almost, really. It was something called his 14 points. And the 14th was the most important. It called for a general association of nations, which must be formed under specific covenants for the purpose of affording mutual guarantees of political and territorial integrity. This, of course, was the League of Nations. One wonders why didn't Woodrow Wilson take some serious Republicans along with him when he went to Versailles? Why did he keep uh, the Senate out of the loop during the drafting of all this peace treaty stuff? Why didn't he send his Secretary of State or a trusted advisor instead of going himself? But for almost six months, the President of the United States lived in France as the peace was drawn. He came back and found immediate opposition from the Senate, especially from Henry Cabot Lodge. And so Wilson figured, well, you know what? I've been leveling the playing field all my life. I'm going to go out there to the people who live out there on the playing field. And he went stumping for his League of Nations, for his 14 points. And he was doing pretty well. He was actually turning the country in his favor when he quite suddenly suffered a stroke, which they, for the most part, kept a secret from the people of this country. They hustled him back on a, on a train. The train went into the night, pulled into uh, Washington, D.C. They quickly put him in a car, whisked him off to the White House. And there, really for the next year and a half of his administration, almost nobody saw the president of the United States of America. The only access anybody had was through his gatekeeper, who was Edith Bowling Galt. Wilson. Was she the acting president of the United States? You'll have to tune in in a couple of years and find out what I think. <laughs> but I'll tell you this. She said she never made a decision, that the president made all the decisions. But on that same token, the flip side of that is, she decided what it is the president decided on. She was the one who decided who could actually come in the room and see him or what papers could be presented to him or what papers could be signed or should be signed, what he had to have an official opinion on. So it's a very fine line here, and largely as a result of this very peculiar situation, we have something now called the 25th Amendment to the Constitution, which deals with this very issue. In 1920, the election came about. It was, in many ways, a referendum on Wilson and the 14 points, and the Democrats lost. They lost bad. Uh, and Warren G. Harding became the president of the United States, and the Wilsons moved out of the White House. They stayed in Washington, D.C., in a house on S Street, where he died in 1924, in February. He was buried in the new uh, National Cathedral. Edith Wilson who was somewhat younger than the president. But Edith Wilson lived long enough to attend the inauguration of John F. Kennedy. <laughs> How about that? You know, David McCullough was talking last night about 
about Washington having his Mount Vernon and Jefferson having his Monticello and Ike painting and so forth. Wilson communed with books. Uh, he loved poetry. He loved novels. He loved vaudeville shows. He loved limericks. He, he loved to play golf. But what he did for refreshment when he was president, he loved to go on the presidential yacht. And there, he once wrote, was an infinite sweet calm in some of those old places that reminded me of the records that were made in the days that are past. And he would go, go down the Potomac and up the James, and he, here's what he said. And I comforted myself with the recollection that there were just as many crooks then as there are now. See, he was not just this grim guy, you know. <laughs> In proportion. And that the men we remember are the men who overcame the crooks and gave us the deeds that have covered the name of America all over with the luster of imperishable glory. More often than not, you see, those men were for Woodrow Wilson, the Virginians, they were Taylor, whom we didn't talk about, and uh, Tippecanoe, and Tyler, too. Um, but most often, Monroe, and Madison, and Jefferson, and George Washington, of course. And so I ask you, when you think of the history of this country, you'll think on that eighth Virginian as well, Woodrow Wilson, who this December will be celebrating his 150th anniversary, his 150th of his birthday. Thank you very much. <laughs>